everyone you may remember last episode crystal's audio had some problems with it and the same thing happened this episode because we actually recorded both episodes on the same day so sorry about that hello and welcome to episode 51 of board game flip a proud member of the dice power network and a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to figure out which popular board game media person has the same taste in games as you board game blitz is sponsored by gray fox games this week we're talking about the influence of board game media first we discuss a couple games we've played recently like anachrony and and then we held hands then we talk about how people in board game media can shape the playing and purchasing habits of board game hobbyists finally we wrap things up with a look at the etymology of the word epic and now here are your hosts ambi and crystal I got to play Anachrony for the first time. Anachrony is a 2017 game designed by David Turksey with Victor Peter and Richard Aman and published by Mind Clash Games. It's a post-apocalyptic game where you play as one of four factions trying to get out ahead and survive an asteroid crash. The theme is also time travel. Uh, but Which I'll is something that you like a lot. <laughs> yes, I like that theme idea. But <laughs> Oh, already caveats. Okay, I'm excited. <laughs> yes. So in Anachrony, there's it's a worker placement game. There's different types of workers that do different things. Like the engineers are better at building things. And there's also researchers and administration people, I think. But um, I thought the time travel part wasn't very thematic because the gameplay is linear and the time travel is done through a loan mechanism where you borrow resources from the future and then later turns you go onto a time machine spot in order to pay it back but you don't actually like go back in time it's just you're in the one timeline that gets all the stuff and you're just going forward but like you don't actually repeat anything which is i in when i think of time travel i think of like the movies where they keep repeating the same thing so it didn't feel like time travel to me also, I didn't actually end up using the time travel thing because I didn't need any of the resources. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I don't usually do loans much in games. But the post-apocalyptic part was actually pretty thematic, I thought. If you've seen pictures of Anachrony, there's these huge minis that look really neat. And those aren't actually the workers. The workers are little cardboard chits, but you put them in the huge minis. The huge minis are exosuits that they need to go in in order to go outside to go on spots on the board. So you have to power up these exosuits and you have a limited number of exosuits to use. And so like to, in order to gather the resources and construct things, you have to go outside and like to protect the workers from the elements, you need those. But you also have a board where you're placing things where you have your own buildings and that's inside. So your workers can just go on that by themselves. So I thought that was pretty cool. Also, there's different factions. The Each faction has a leader that has different powers, and the factions have different powers too, but I didn't play with the variable faction powers, but I still like got a feel of the, the different powers from the leaders and the goals, because mine was centered around like getting water tech, and my leader could recruit people by spending water, so I just got a bunch of workers and had a bunch of water. Um, I guess it was centered around like life and stuff. So that, that was pretty fun. So I enjoyed the game, Anachrony, but I was disappointed in the time travel theme because like, I, I heard, oh, it's a time travel game, but it didn't feel like a time travel game to me. It was just, it felt more like the post-apocalyptic game. But if you like that post-apocalyptic theme, you should definitely try out Anachrony. It's weird because all of the aspects of this game are things that 
I know I like. I like worker mm-hmm. placement. I like post-apocalyptic as a theme. <laughs> I enjoy time travel, even as a small theme. And yet, for some reason, I've been, like, weirdly off-put by this game. And I can't tell you why. Like, every time I've seen people playing it, I've had, like, no desire to play it. And multiple huh. people have said, Crystal, this is a game you'll probably like. Like, different people. And for whatever reason, I just don't have a desire to try it. And I don't know why. Do you, like, based on what you know about me, do you think I would like this? Um, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, it's weird. It's one of those things where, you know how, like, you sometimes just, like, think you're not going to like a thing for no apparent reason? This is one of those for me. And I don't know why. Hmm. It's weird. Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) It looks cool, too. Or do you like the art and stuff? I think it yeah, looks- it looks pretty okay. neat. There's nothing discernibly off-putting about it. Huh. Um, okay. Maybe the play length, because it's a pretty yeah, long Yeah, it's pretty game. long. There's a lot of planning, so. And I wonder if yeah, maybe I've started to shy away from longer games where maybe. I'm not 100% certain. Like, mm-hmm. if you put a Star Trek game in front of me, I don't care how long it is, I'm going to try it because it's Star Trek. But, like, with something like this where it's generic post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. thing, maybe I'm like, oh, if it was an hour or hour and a half, like, easy sell but if it's longer maybe that's tougher for me at this point i don't know yeah maybe it's the length yeah because it is a pretty long game i think i forget how long it took (laughs) a couple hours two to three i don't know yeah i think i think for a lot of my friends in my group um and my group tends to play slower than most i think it's been at least a three hour Mm -hmm. game if not more for them so i recently got to play a game for the first time that i've been wanting to play for quite some time the game is and then we held hands which was published in 2015 by Ludi Creations, designed by David Cherkop and Yannick Massa, with art from Marie Cardois, David Cherkop, and Todd Sanders. And Then We Held Hands is a two-player cooperative game where the players are attempting to navigate a relationship together and ultimately each find balance The players each have a row of cards in front of them with emotions on them, and only half of every card is visible. And the half that's visible can shift during the course of the game based on where your token is on the board, because your perspective on the relationship changes and therefore your emotions shift. Players are not allowed to speak to each other during the course of the game at all. But on your turn, you have to discard cards from the row of cards either in front of yourself or the row in front of your partner to move your token on the board to different uh, little spots of different colors. And you're attempting to complete objectives, which are emotions on the side of the board, and they also correspond with the colors on the board. So you have to end your turn on the same color as the color on the objective emotion card to complete it. And players are doing this back and forth, no talking, And things change based on whether you're doing emotions that are positive or negative because you have to try and strike balance. So at certain points, you can't take, you can't discard emotion cards of a specific type if your balance isn't close enough to the middle. There's eight cards in each of three decks. And as you complete each deck, your pawns can move toward the center of the board more and more. And eventually you're trying to each get into the very middle of the board. um, And that is, I guess, when you have a happy relationship. It's pretty abstracted, truthfully. And that's kind of why I thought maybe I wouldn't like this because the theme doesn't feel quite as strong just when you glance at it. But holy cow, was this fun. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed this game. And I think it would help that I played with my friend Elissa 
she and I tend to be pretty like synchronized in the way that we think in games. And that can be really problematic in competitive games, especially if we're <laughs> sitting next to each other, because inevitably whoever goes first will take the action the other player wanted to do <laughs> every time. And it's like, it's fun for us, but every time we're just like, ah, like you think the same way as me. And that worked out so well in this. Cause there's those moments where you see your partner discarding a card from their row or your row and you don't understand what they're trying to do right away and you have that moment of panic but then it all comes like you see that eventually what they're trying to do and it all comes together and you have those moments of like sheer relief and like oh they did know what they were doing they had a plan and it's all fine and it did it felt like a relationship in a way that I didn't expect I want to play it more I want to play it a lot more but I do I can already see that with repeated plays, this could get old pretty quickly because there isn't much thematically to it. Like the experience was really enjoyable, but I imagine if I did that same experience with Elissa, you know, 20 times, that it would lose some of its luster. And I kind of wish there were expansions, but there aren't any for it. And I guess there probably never will be since it came out three years ago now, but who knows? It also is making me want to play Fog of Love with Elissa, which I haven't played yet, but I've heard really good things about. And it's a much more thematic relationship experience game. And so I told her, I was like, oh, I want to go to Walmart right now and buy Fog of Love so we can play it. And maybe I will do that at some point in the future. But And Then We Held Hands is a really interesting, abstract, two-player cooperative game. And that's pretty rare. That's not a genre that has a lot of games in it to begin with. So I think if you have somebody, whether that be a romantic partner or a good friend, I think this is one that you should definitely check out at some point, people who are listening. (laughs) And also you, Ambie, because I know you guys like the Raven, or not. um, Yeah, the Ravens of Three Sahashri. Ravens of Three Sahashri. And have you guys played And Then We Held Hands before? Yeah, we played it at BGG Con last year. Um, But yeah, it it wasn't, (laughs) well... So Toby and I don't actually think the same. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, well, but, no, that's, yeah. what's funny is I would say the same thing probably if I tried to play this with my husband. I actually don't <laughs> think we would do as well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was, it was kind of fun. I think, uh, yeah, I don't really remember. I think we didn't do very well. <laughs> well, it was neat and I enjoyed it. And since some of the art is by Marie Cardois, who is mm-hmm. one of my other favorite board game artists, that's just a bonus. For our thematic discussion this week, and it weirdly kind of ties into our discussion from our last episode where we were talking about what makes a game bad, we want to discuss how board game media affect the playing and purchasing habits of board game hobbyists. And I should preface this by saying we're not necessarily speaking about ourselves since we're still (laughs) small fish in a niche pond so to speak uh we're not generally going to be speaking about ourselves and how we influence people but just how board game media as a whole can influence people and obviously not every person who plays board games consumes board game media so this discussion wouldn't apply to those people as well there's caveats all over the place so we, got, we asked for responses on our Board Game Geek Guild and on social media to try and get some thoughts from other people, because obviously our own personal opinions aren't representative of everybody. And we did get answers that ranged all the way across the scale, from people who are heavily influenced by board game media in what they play and what they purchase, to people who say that they are almost not influenced at all. 
Yeah, and there were some people who said that they used to be more influenced as when they were uh, first getting into the hobby, but now they know their tastes more, and so they aren't influenced as much anymore by media. But they like use it to learn more about what's coming out, and then they can research themselves, which is, I think, what I do. I would say that's the same for me as well. When I was <laughs> newer to the hobby, or when not even when I was new to the hobby, but when I was new to kind of cre- creating and curating my own collection. I, you know, I bought some stuff kind of sight unseen, just based on the recommendation of a person online. For instance, Kingdom Builder, I bought solely because (laughs) Will Wheaton tweeted about it years ago. Like, I literally just saw a tweet from him saying how much he loved it and how awesome it was. And I wonder if I could even look back in his Twitter feed (laughs) and figure out when that was, but that's the only reason I bought it originally. Wow. It wasn't because it was, I didn't know who Donald X Vaccarino was, I think at that point, like even if I had already played Dominion, I didn't connect the dots there. Mm-hmm. I didn't, it wasn't an award winning or an award nominated thing in my head. It was just Will Wheaton says it's good. Therefore I'm going to buy it. And luckily <laughs> I like it a lot. <laughs> wow. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that tweet from Will Wheaton was in 2014 And he just said, really enjoyed Kingdom Builder. Good ratio of luck to strategy. Plays fast. Very easy to teach. It's on the list. And I think he tweeted about it again. He said, Kingdom Builder is really awesome around the same time. And that was enough to get me to buy it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I don't know if I ever really did or watched much board game media like when I was first getting into the hobby. I think the games we bought were just like going into the store asking them what's good or from Reddit, which... I, I don't know if that counts as, I don't think that counts as board game media. I don't know. I, I don't know what Reddit counts as, but. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the ultimate question that we'll probably never be able to what answer. Is <laughs> but yeah, so like I didn't actually start watching board or listening, watching and listening board game media until I was already, I already had like a decent sized collection. And then by then I was doing more research in games. So then I used board game media as research like looking at reviews um, to see if I was interested in a game. But now I pretty much don't buy games until I play them. (laughs) And I think that tends to be the case for people as their collections grow as well, because you have to be a little more discerning at a certain point. But a Mm -hmm. lot of people uh, that responded to us online did say that as time passed, they started to learn which board game media people Mm -hmm. had similar tastes to them and that their opinions then would be weighted more heavily because if they like all these other games that I like, this new thing that they like, maybe I'll like it too. And that makes sense. And I think yeah. for me, that's been the case. There are specific people in board game media who like the same things I do. And so I might put more weight into their thoughts about a game than I would mm-hmm. someone else. Mm-hmm. So what what responsibility do board game media, and this could be ourselves included, but other people, what responsibility do we have to the people who are listening to the content that we make? Uh, or what responsibility do we have to the people who created the games we're talking about? Like for us and for many people in board game media, we're not like, this is not a paid job. Mm-hmm. This is, this podcasting is still a hobby for us. So we can technically say whatever we want. Yeah. But I think we should still be respectful. And, like if we don't like a game, we shouldn't bash on it really. Like we, we can say why we don't like it, but we, yeah, just still be respectful because it's still something that someone made and that that person put effort into making it. And just like 
the same as if you're watching content, you shouldn't just say, oh, this is terrible video or whatever, because that person put all of their effort into making that video. I, I guess we have to be respectful. <laughs> and it's tough because when you don't like a thing and people care about what your opinion on said thing is, there is value in providing a negative review of mm -hmm. a game. But that can be really heartbreaking for potentially a game designer or a game publisher. And for board game media people who have gained a lot of influence within the industry, their opinions can, it seems, potentially even shift purchasing habits for large groups of people. Mm -hmm. And that that's a really weighty responsibility. Uh, not too long ago, Tom Basil, our buddy over at the Dice Tower, put out a, a really neat video where he did uh, quick reviews of games that he did not like. Uh, he put them all in one video. He didn't make, you know, an individual video for each game, you know, talking about horrible things about it or anything like that. He kind of condensed it all down. But some publishers and designers were upset after the fact that he talked poorly about their games. And in my head, I was thinking, so which is better for him to say nothing about a game he dislikes and potentially do a disservice to the people who value his opinions mm -hmm. or to say, no, this game is something that I didn't like. Here's why. And potentially upset the people who created the game. And I think it's a very tricky line to walk. And I think yeah. that's why a majority of board game reviewers tend to focus more on the positive reviews. Also because it's just, it's well, it doing takes your time. <laughs> oh yeah. Negative reviews are a really, really hard thing. Here's what a lot of people don't realize is if you don't enjoy a game, playing it enough times to be able to properly review it is pretty miserable, honestly. Yeah. And then having to either write up or video a review of that game, you you're taking all of the things that make making board game content fun out of it at that point. And mm -hmm. so people always say, Oh man, all of your reviews are positive. XYZ board game reviewers over there on YouTube. And it's like, well, they can't spend their time doing all <laughs> negative things because that it kind of sucks the life out of you. Yeah. But yeah, I think like if you have a review and you're going to be doing a review on it, and you don't like the game. It's, it's good to say why you don't like it because then it's valuable to people. So that's yeah. what if I ever do like official reviews, <laughs> like right now I've done a couple of written reviews and I try to do like positives and negatives for them, but um, I'm not really much of a reviewer. I don't really, I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel yeah, I like I'm not to, much. <laughs> we tend to give our thoughts and impressions on games and we'll give our opinion, yeah. but we're not doing full breakdowns mm -hmm. and complete comprehensive reviews. I think yeah. we, we're reviewers, but only on, at like a, a low complexity level if that makes sense impressions yes usually. well and often a lot of the games that we discuss at the beginning of our episodes we don't consider those to be reviews only oh, yeah. because often it's a game we've only played once or maybe twice sometimes we play an older game that like when i did herbaceous i've played that a bunch mm -hmm. but most of the time it's ooh, i want to tell you about this thing that i just played mm -hmm. and Sometimes our first impressions could change. Maybe uh, I discussed Sunset Over Water in our last episode and I wasn't super keen on it, but maybe after I play it a few more times, I'll really like it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know what? I'll probably come back and let you all know mm -hmm. that because I want you to know that, hey, this game that looks really pretty, there's some more to it that I mm -hmm. didn't see the first time through. And that's important. 
So as board game media people, you and I have kind of always tried to be thoughtful and discerning about how we approach our discussions of games. And I think almost all other board game media people do the same. But do you think our responsibilities have changed or will change over time? Because when we started the podcast, I mean, in those first few weeks, we were getting our episodes downloaded, what, like maybe 100 or 200 times? I don't remember, but probably. (laughs) Yeah, like very few people. And now we get thousands of people downloading Mm -hmm. our episodes. And is that a big deal? Because in the grand scheme of the world, that's still a very small subset of people. But in board game podcasting, that feels like Mm -hmm. it's almost kind of a big deal. So should we theoretically be reevaluating how we approach our thoughts on games as a service to our listeners? Uh, I don't know. Because I feel like we're already approaching them, like we say we played it and that's our impressions, or like we we try not to be like saying that it's terrible without a reason, and I think that's good. But but yeah, it is kind of weird because when someone says, "Oh, I bought this because of you," it's like, "Oh my gosh," which has happened. I hope you like it. Yeah. So so we, then I get really worried. It's like a lot of pressure <laughs> hoping that someone likes a game. <laughs> absolutely. And I think we've kind of tried to be very transparent about how we handle this kind of stuff. Like back in episode 38, we did our ethics in game media discussion where mm-hmm. we kind of specifically told people how we approach that stuff. And especially because we brought on our sponsor, Gray Fox Games at that point, And we didn't want people to think that that was going to affect how we've made content. And I would say... Now that we're 12 episodes after the fact, I would hope people have recognized that we're doing exactly what we said we were going to do. And it's, but it does, it, it's, I have these moments where I'm kind of like, holy cow, how many people listened to our episode? That's, I never knew that we were going to get to this point, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it feels very surreal. And I can't believe it's been almost two years That is, I mean, it's been almost three years since we started talking about doing the podcast, or that'll be this summer. But then, like, yeah, our our two-year anniversary is going to be coming up next month. And, (laughs) oh my gosh, we have something really, really fun planned for our two-year anniversary. You all are not even ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think board game media in general do have responsibilities to their listeners, whether they're being paid to create content or not. And I think your point of respect is a big deal and clarifying similar, going back to our discussion from last week, making sure you explain things, what is objectively bad versus what is subjectively bad, because those two things are different and people will see things in different ways. So Mm -hmm. it's, uh, but there, I mean, there's value to adding your, telling your personal thoughts, even if you absolutely hate a thing. Just say why. Yeah. Like, Like, yeah. If this then, game made you mad because it was so broken, yeah. you can get mad about that, but you just have to understand that, like, your opinion is not the end of the world. It's not the be-all, end-all. It's not what everybody's going to experience with a thing. Yeah. And as long as you explain it, someone can watch it and be like, oh, I like all of the things that you said are bad, so that make might make them want to get the game. <laughs> That's very true. I And I think... I've done that before where somebody whose opinions don't mesh with mine doesn't like a game and it's actually kind of been like, oh, maybe I should check it <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. 
Oh, and it's, it's not always reviews in media either. It could be other things. Like, I've got someone say that they bought Kanban after listening to my Kanban song parody that I've done. And, and that's, that's not even amazing. a review. Like, that's just <laughs> me being silly. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, the song is really, really neat, but it doesn't <laughs> discuss how the game works in any kind of real in-depth way. Like, you get a, a, a little bit of a yeah. feel for it and you can see it. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know what? I would actually be curious to know if any of our listeners have played or purchased games based on something they heard on our show because we mm-hmm. don't actually get to hear that very often. And it's totally cool if you haven't. But if you have, maybe shoot us a line on Twitter or send us an email or something because I would be curious to know, especially <laughs> if it's something that you ended up really loving because that'll make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> yeah. For this week's etymology segment, we're going to look at the origins of the word epic. The English word epic originated in the 1580s when it meant pertaining to or constituting a lengthy heroic poem. It can be traced back to the Middle French epique, spelled E-P-I-Q-U-E, as well as the Latin word epicus and the Greek word epikos, which came from epos, meaning a word, tale, story, promise, or prophecy. The usage of the word epic didn't shift to mean grand or heroic until the 1730s. So most of the roots of the word epic have to do with poetry, but in modern times, the word has become colloquial slang used to describe extraordinary or momentous things. You know, such as a board game that weighs 21 pounds or a last to first victory that no one saw coming. And that's it for this week's Board Game Blitz. Visit our website, BoardGameBlitz.com, for video and blog content, as well as to get links to all our social media pages, including our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Board Game Geek Guild. This episode was sponsored by Gray Fox Games. Have you picked up your copy of Rising 5 Runes of Astros yet? Well, what are you waiting for? Grab Rising 5 at your friendly local game store or order it at GrayFoxGames.com. Gray Fox Games. Quality games, cleverly crafted. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to show us a little love, you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just head to patreon.com slash boardgameblitz. Our patrons get a lot of benefits, including access to our private Slack channel where you can chat with us directly anytime. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Technical support provided by Toby Mao. Board Game Blitz is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Check out the other shows in the network by visiting dicetowernetwork.com. Until next time, well how can I pick games to play? When there are always blitzers there to convince me. Bye, everyone. Bye. Don't, I mean, if you're going to buy a game based on a recommendation we gave, just, I don't know. <laughs> you better out. like That's, it. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can cut that out. <laughs> well, how can I pick games to play? When there are, are, uh, (laughs) there are, are, are. Okay. Then we talk about how people. Wait, what? I don't know. How people board game media can. I don't. (laughs) Uh.